wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Your nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We'll have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Do you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, Nana will find out right away. Really? Zala? Hello, we're back. We're both the reclining cinema wages. <laughs> I'm already lost the name of our podcast. Welcome back to the recliners of cinema. <laughs> um, and uh, we're now going to continue and conclude with our best films of 2019 list. Yes. And um, number five on our list is our the same movie. We right? both have the same number five. Number five is Lulu Wang's The Farewell. And this, uh, for a while, was actually my number one of the year. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say for a while, but for a good little bit. This really took me by surprise. Uh, I was I was looking forward to the movie based on the trailer. Uh, you know, it has a very just captivating concept uh, that you don't really get to see too much, at least in American film, because... You know, how often do movies with a predominantly or almost exclusively Asian cast or even Chinese cast get, you know, pretty significant release? But this is the case. And then here you get the story of a uh, of a young woman who finds out that her grandmother is uh, has terminal cancer. But the catch is in China if someone of an elderly age gets cancer, the family doesn't tell this, you know, the, 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 yeah. the person they're, they're kind of left to just think, Oh, you know, you're, you know, you're a little bit under the weather, but you'll be fine. Yeah. And, you know, and the doctor even, you know, the, what's it, it's, it, it turns, it makes for a situation that I guess people in the West can't really contemplate. And, that's part of the subject matter of the movie, but it also is just a completely moving and just heartbreaking, but also joy joyful movie in surprising ways about what it means to be in a family. Yeah, and I actually, one of the things the I think the movie does well, one of many things, is I totally got it why they wouldn't tell the grandma, because... Obviously, um, the lead character played by Aquafina, she's more Americanized than other members of the family. Like she's primarily they and other members of her family tell her, like, you have a more American mindset. But the family has this attitude, which I can totally understand that it is noble and beautiful of them to the, bear the burden for her of her diagnosis that she shouldn't be troubled because ultimately she can't do anything about it. She's yes. terminally ill. Yeah. Or as they say in the movie, it's not the cancer that kills. It's the fear that's yeah, connected so, with it, which maybe there is something to that. Well, ironically, we listened to an interview with Lulu Wong and she mentioned her so-called terminally ill grandmother still alive years and years after her diagnosis. And 
still and, doesn't and, really know what's and like the, yeah like this interviewer asked her like what does she think the movie's about and they're just like ah oh, this they just she thinks it's about a girl who comes back to china to see her family and... well i think the movie also i thought there's a little ambiguity into the movie about mm-hmm. whether maybe the grandma does know and she's not letting on to her extended family. So it's possible the deception mm-hmm. goes both ways. But no, it doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, yeah. But it's also the the, pro- the the other part of it is that this, the grandmother also lost her husband to like the husband died, the yeah. grandfather. And what I love in the movie so much is that it, it's a much, it's about a much greater issue. Like the whole grandmother doesn't know she has cancer thing is like the hook of the movie. Like, that's what you get to have the audience be like, oh, I want to hear more about this. It's really about how lies keep a family glued together. And it's the kind of, it's big lies, but it's also little lies. Big little lies. Ah, (laughs) This is much better than big little lies. Yeah, much better. Oh God, this past season. Um, But it's, I said in my review that it can be kind of tricky because, you know, if you're married to someone, lying to them is wrong. I mean, if I lied to you, that wouldn't be right. But sometimes, certain times, you know, you might lie to your mother or father about something. Yeah. Or maybe they lie about something to you. I mean, and it's sometimes to protect you from the information. I mean, like, I I actually remember in my, fa- in my family, on my father's side, um, my my father actually wasn't told that uh, the, like his, his father, like he, like the person who was, he thought was his, his mother wasn't really his mother. And they tried, they, they kept that from, for, you know, them for a long time because, you know, didn't want to know, Oh, Hey, this is like a secret thing that wasn't, you know, we didn't want to say, and I feel like that, that, that lies in lying and little deceptions are what keep families together. Yeah. I mean, because if you just say the truth all the time, you know, it's going to fuck you up. Ricky Gervais made a movie about that like a decade ago. Oh yeah. Right. Back when he made movies. (laughs) And, but yeah. And one of the things I loved about this movie is all the familial relationships are so nuanced and there's this mixture of affection and obligation and love and resentment and yeah and what does it mean to do this as like a selfless act and you know how much love does it show that you know you're doing this and everyone has to keep it up and then you also then get people in the family they're like some of them are perfectly fine to lie to the grandmother while some other ones aren't Yeah, and there's that great scene where in order to maintain the lie, members of the extended family are having a wedding. Mm -hmm. So they're basically staging a wedding, and the wedding is the pretext to get everyone together, when in reality, everyone wants to get together. You know what occurs to me? This is one of two movies, this on our list, where a wedding is a pretext for another major thing that's going on. <laughs> yeah, <you're right. laughs> Seeing those deep connections. 
Yeah. There's no slow motion put to, uh, you know, an old doo-wop song, though, in The Farewell. And, yeah, we just love this movie. It's phenomenally acted. Oh, God. Phenomenal. The one that, you know, we talk sometimes about, oh, this or that person got, you know, snubbed, so to speak, with the wards. And, you know, it's always hard to quantify that because, you know, you turn art into a popularity contest, it becomes a little bit warped. And, you know, it's, you know, very unfair, but good God, like the actress Sujin Zhao, and I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but the, the, the woman who, the grandma, yeah, the woman who plays the grandma, her name is, uh, I think her name is Nate, Nene. Yeah. <laughs> she, 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 her hair. She, 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 <laughs> oh she, she is delightful in this yeah. movie it's like she is what i think elevates this because she you know you have an act you have someone like aquafina or even like the the people the actors who play her parents and you know they're both they're all very good but you can tell you know they're actors but susan zhao feels like she is like the grandmother like she just feels like a person who wandered onto the set and Lou Luang said oh you're playing the grandma now and yeah. it's like that type of heartbreaking but completely soulful performance that brings a little bit of neorealism to the movie and there's even a touch of neorealism elsewhere because Lulu Wang is also looking at how a place changes and Aquafina comes back to this, you know, area in China and sees how everything has changed and uh, all these th developments that have happened. Yeah, so there's some fish out of water stuff as well, where there's this kind of I'm too American, I'm too American for China, but um, but too Chinese for America kind of but, stuff going on. Yeah. So that, that's, a, that's a, a sub that's another layer that's going on here. But yeah, Susan Zhao, like she's just so sweet and warm and profound. And she gets so many little moments. Like when she, at the wedding, when she talks about her time in the, in the military. Yeah. And she's the way she casually relays Oh, it's that she lived a life and that's what makes it just such a your heart fills so much for her for her character because you think like this woman has lived so long why can't she live longer and yeah. it kind of you know it's like this and another movie that we'll talk about it really it really provokes you to think about what are you going to do with the time you have in your life? Yeah, and basically, this is the film that kind of struggles with questions of mortality where the characters have souls. Um, but uh, As opposed to another movie I talked about? Well, no, as opposed to a movie that's higher up on both our lists. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just, you know, kudos to Lulu Wang. She manages to find a lot of sincerity and moments that are awkward, but you know, she doesn't go for like easy laughs all the time. Yeah, there, there is some humor in this movie and there are things that are funny, 
Um, although it's bizarre that it was nominated under the best comedy category in the Golden Globe. Wait, was it? Yeah, it was in the best comedy and musical. <sighs> Man, I I don't get that. Like, you know, on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I guess that's a funnier movie. But ultimately, that's still kind of a drama, too. I mean, I guess it's a comedy drama, but man, all these movies like The Martian that get best comedy, man, like, just stop. Like, if you're going to, how about you just create a third character, best dramedy? But yeah, this movie was awesome. We can't wait to see what Lulu Wong does next. And yeah, and I would love to see more movies with the grandma, but uh, realistically, I probably won't because she works primarily in China. She's yeah. When you look her up on Letterboxd, The Farewell is her only credit on yeah. Letterboxd. But really, I Googled her. She's a Chinese stage and TV actress primarily. Yeah. And um, the uh, oh, and it was very charming. I saw an interview with her and she gushed about getting to meet Al Pacino and how yeah. excited she was about meeting Leonardo DiCaprio because apparently everyone in China has seen Titanic. So they call him Little Leo. Yeah, they're so cute. <laughs> All right. So um, moving on then, my number four is a film you haven't seen, um, which if my, if my mother's listening out there, she actually she and I saw this, so she might remember this a little bit. It's a little movie that uh, I haven't seen talked about too much called Monos. Yeah, I had totally, not only did I not see this movie, I had totally forgotten it even existed until I looked at your list. Yeah, this is the... Definitely a big sleeper, not just for this year, but for this decade, you know, uh, and, you know, I, I know that obviously we can't wait for the sequel, Monos, The Hands of Fate. <laughs> 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 I had to make that joke. I just I, I had to. This is talk about a vision. You, you know, sometimes with film, you you wonder, like, what else can they do? What else can a filmmaker do to communicate something that's happening in the world? And this is just a, there's no other word for it, but completely harrowing movie. And uh, to try to talk about what, what happens, I mean, it's the basic short of it. What it says on Letterboxd is on a faraway mountaintop, eight kids with guns watch over a hostage and a conscripted milk cow. That is really intriguing <laughs> summary. Uh, th this is, it's funny because I, I saw this movie within a few days of uh, seeing Joker. Oh. And to me, it's like, oh, oh, there are so many people who are coming out of Joker online saying, this movie's hardcore. And, you know, it's so like raw and hard and, you know, all the, no, Manos is hardcore. This is a movie that's about something, and the director, he, the way I tried to say, to say it was, it, this feels like a new Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Like, it has that level of looking at a very horrific tale of human nature head on, but it has, like, a kind of visual poetry to it. And it's in this in this filmmaker who made it, his name is Alejandro Landis. He basically pulled together these young people who 
I'm not sure if they're maybe some of them have acted in something before. I, I can't say they have, but these eight kids, they're basically child soldiers in what is like, a, I guess, a revolution down or, or like, a you know, a rebellion in the country in Central America. But ultimately, again, they just spend they spend their time having to listen to like this, like three foot tall little guy who's basically like a major in this quote unquote army who's basically turning these children into killers. And, and yeah, they they have a hostage who's played by Julianne Nicholson. Um, you've probably she's seen her. She's so things. good. She's such a good actor. She had an amazing arc in season two of Masters of Sex. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Masters of Sex, and she's in uh, I, Tonya, uh Black Mass. She's probably one of the only good things in August Osage County. Um, accurate. Yeah. But this movie, it, again, it, this is one of those films that is completely immersive. The cinematography brings you into this location and it's like, even the location scout, like whoever was the location scout of this movie should get like a, you know, a hundred thousand dollar bonus or something. I, I'm throwing out a random number because of just, how these young people are situated on this mountaintop. And then in, in another part of the movie, they're in a jungle and it's certainly not a movie to watch. If you're, you know, wanting that like, it's not a movie to put on in place of singing in the rain. <laughs> it's not necessarily a feel good movie, but it is such a breathtaking work of art that, um, that it's it's hard to really put into words why it's so incredible. It it really sh- it like I mentioned Aguirre because it's almost like that film. I felt like Herzog was trying to take the idea of a conquistador or people who are trying to search for new lands and bring it into a more primitive uh, framework or frame of mind. Uh, with this though, again, this is set in present day. And, you know, this isn't set like hundreds of years ago. And yet it it has that similar feeling of feeling like you're in this jungle with them. And that's what's so dangerous. And and, you know, and like some of the child of these children, they they suddenly like at least one of them realizes, hey, I can't keep doing this. This is getting really out of hand. Like some of these kids, some of these people are going to kill me if I don't do everything that they say. And, Oh God, when they, they it's basically, it, 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 it's like a kind of big poem of chaos in the jungle. And I make, I know I'm, I'm making this sound very high minded, but Oh God, like it just really struck me as, a the, the film that I wish more people were talking about this year that people aren't and yeah. um and especially is like a if it wasn't for a movie that we'll later talk about it would be my foreign film of the year yes I guess so. in a way I give this like a kind of bonus gold star like mm-hmm. good job Landis you you are a you've made a vision of hell that can't be topped and you know it's not a movie i'm going to turn on like every day or anything like that but i'm when i left the theater it 
it left me exhausted in a great way. It didn't leave me exhausted like the Joker did. (laughs) (laughs) This time with Manos, I felt like I did get what I deserved. (laughs) Well, yeah, any other year, this would be your foreign language film of the year, but our number one film is just so good that it's almost not fair to compare other movies to it. Our number one is so, so, so Well, I would say more to the point, with this movie, Manos, I mentioned Werner Herzog. This is like if Werner Herzog made Lord of the Flies. That's all you need to know. That's, an, that's a rave. That's an excellent... Yeah. All right. Now, number four. Now, my number four movie, because it's a movie that came out early in 2019, it's the movie I've had time to see the most. I've seen this movie three and a half times, which is the really? most... Well, I saw it twice in the theater, which I almost never do, and it came out early enough in the year that it's on TV now. I've watched it one and a half times on television. So, my number four movie is Us. Once upon a time, there was a girl. The two were connected together together. When the girl ate, her food was given to her warm and tasty. But when the shadow was hungry, she had to eat rabbit raw and bloody. On Christmas, the girl received wonderful toys, soft and cushy. With the shadows, toys were so sharp and cold, they'd slice through her fingers when she tried to play with them. The girl met a handsome prince and fell in love with the shadow. At that same time, and Abraham. It didn't matter if she loved him or not. He was tethered to the girl's prince after all. Then the girl had her first child, a beautiful baby girl. But the shadow, she gave birth to a little monster. Hombre was born laughing. The girl had a second child, a boy this time. They had to cut her open and take him from her belly. The shadow had to do it all. Herself, she named him Pluto. He was born to love fire. So you see, the shadow hated the girl so much, but so Until one day, the shadow realized she was being tested by God. Excuse me. Excuse me. What do you want? You could have my wallet. You you could have the car. Gabe. 
You could have the boat for all I care. <laughs> Nobody wants the boat, Dad. About it, but Get Out was my number one film of what was it, 2017? Yes. So, Jordan Peele, you're slipping. You're all the way to number four on my list <laughs> this year. Get it together, buddy. Um, you only made the fourth best film ever. <laughs> now, this is a movie, too, that I liked. Hey, you could say this. Your favorite major studio American release this year. Yeah, that's true. There you um, go. So, and this is a movie that when we saw it together, I really liked it and I was really hot for it, but it's even, it's improved even more in my estimation over the year. Yeah. So let's get into why I love this movie. And I, the reason why I love it is if you turn your brain off and watch it just as a horror movie without any of the deeper commentary, without any of all the thoughtfulness. It works spectacularly well just as horror spectacle. Oh, it's a very, like, I said this when I first saw the movie. It's a legitimately scary movie. It really is. Like, I... I like horror movies, but because I've been a horror movie fan since I was a little kid, and since I watched pretty violent movies from a young age, I'm pretty desensitized, and it's rare for a movie to actually really disturb me. This movie did. Like, this is the kind of movie that the night we saw this, when I was trying to go to bed, the podcasters don't know this, but we have, like, a clothing rack in our bedroom. Yeah. Kind of like you would have in a store where I have some dresses hung up. And when I was laying in bed, I saw that rack, and I thought for a second that, like, oh, my God, my doppelganger's come to murder me. <laughs> so. I want your clothes. Lupita Nyong'o undoubtedly turned in the performance of the year. Like, I know she won't win the Best Actress Oscar, but to me, she unambiguously deserves it. Her performance is absolutely spectacular. So this movie is really legitimately scary. In fact, I actually think it's more legitimately scary than Get Out is. I would, I would say that, yeah. I mean, I think Get Out is, for me just slightly better because I think it's commentary is a little bit more laser focused. Yeah. Um, I know us is definitely saying something about the national character. I mean, <laughs> as somebody else pointed on a podcast, it's the us also stands for us. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, but, but to me, it definitely works best as a horror movie. Like, and it's it's basically it's the imagery of this movie has stayed with me throughout I, the entire year. I would say that actually when I saw the I seen the movie twice. When I saw it a second time, I didn't find it as scary, but I found I could then enjoy the performances more. Oh yeah, the other thing is this movie is a big twist ending and when you and sometimes when a movie is a big twist, that can be an issue in terms of rewatching. Not at all with this movie. Like rewatching the movie, knowing where it's going, it's still excellent. I there is one thing I nitpick, which is why it's only an honorable mention and oh. not a top ten film like it is for you. The, the uh, tethered version of 
Lupita Nyong'o yeah. character. Uh, yeah. We call her, I guess, Red. Yeah. Maybe. She has two monologues in the movie, and, and the first one is pretty fantastic, but the second one I thought was clunky. I like and, and I, I she delivers it well, but I think the writing of it was just a little bit. You're not, not the only person I've heard say that, but I don't know. My attitude is I really like it just because a the delivery is really good and b I needed it. Frankly, I'm not gonna lie, I needed it to really like. No, I get needing it, but it still could have been written better. Um. Now, I will say, immediately after that, you get the kind of dance of death that the two characters have that is incredibly well... It's choreographed almost like a ballet of, like, chaos. Yeah, and... With that score, too. I do think the social commentary... You're right. I think it's broader than Get Out. And I think because it's broader, it's less, like, laser-focused on one specific point. But it's really up my alley. You know, I have a real soft spot for deconstruction of the American Dream stories. Mm -hmm. That's, like, that's a real sweet spot for me. And I feel like this movie does that. And I feel like this movie, of course, touches on economic inequality, which might be coming up again. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it is. It does involve class and almost like spiritual slavery. Yeah. And every every single American lives a life subsidized by slave labor in the rest of the world. I mean, none of our products are manufactured in America anymore. So we wear clothing made for us by people around the world working for like five cents an hour. We talk on phones made by like child laborers. That's okay, Corey, because we have the hands across America. (laughs) My, my one nitpick of this movie is not the final monologue. It's the fact that one thing is a little unclear in the sense that the movie suggests throughout that the tethered are supernaturally linked to their doppelgangers above ground because, and we see in the movie the tethered replicating the actions of the above ground people Mm -hmm. without any knowledge of what they're doing. So without seeing what their above ground counterpart is doing or hearing what their above ground counterpart is doing, they're still mimicking their actions. And we see this in the movie, which means of course, when the, when we find out that really the Lupita Nyong'o spoilers for a movie that's like almost a year old at this point when we find out that in childhood the tethered lupita nyong'o stole the above ground one yeah and switched places with her i don't think the movie addresses why she was able to break that supernatural link yeah yeah and why other people never been able to do that i get that you know, the, the character as a child had to really go out of her way to just even accidentally find her. I guess she's the equivalent of that one George Romero zombie who learned to talk. And... <laughs> she, she's the bub. Of, <laughs> do you remember Day of the Dead where bub becomes kind of like the thinking, feeling zombie? But I love this movie, and I think that... Oh, it's very good. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think... This shows a director who is able to 
really capitalize on his first movie and produce something that's just as audacious and weird in a lot of ways. Like the design of just these tethered and where they're living. It's just really... It's it's, it's a two-hour Twilight Zone movie, but it's like... Wow, what a pilot for your t- new Twilight Zone <laughs> series, which Jordan Peele also Yeah, produced. which we only watched like three episodes of and then stopped following. Well, because <laughs> after you have us, like, how do you how do you top that? You do such an amazing tethered voice, by the way. You sound exactly If I, if like I keep it. doing it, I'm not going to have a voice. Like, yeah, but... When I do, like, doing the tethered voice or my Jason Manzoukas impression <laughs> really bums me out. Like, this is what Jason Manzoukas sounds like. It's sheer nonsense. <laughs> so, I love us, and Jordan Peele is amazing, and yeah, good stuff. Now, let's get into the part of our list that's going to be pretty boring for the listeners, because guess what? We have the same movies in our top I, three. I initially thought of putting Monos as number three, and I had it there for a little while, but then I realized that... Um, no, Noah, Noah Baumbach really hit a home run this year with the uh, marriage story. And I said my number two movie and my number three movie were so close to each other. I was literally going to decide right now, which would be three and which would be two, because I am still indecisive about oh, Corey. You said you were going to decide by now. I know. I said I was going to decide right now in. the So moment. now did you decide is marriage story? your number three. I don't you keep talking, Corey. All right, fine. Well, Marriage Story, man, Netflix really giving some room to some filmmakers again. Um, I'd say in my review, I said that you know, never go full Bergman. You don't go <laughs> full Bergman, but you know what? In this case, there's actually a scene where. Noah Baumbach has a framed picture. Okay, I've decided. I have my rankings ready. Keep talking. With uh, the Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson characters, Charlie and Nicole, that says scenes from a marriage. <laughs> but you know what? Noah Baumbach, he, he earned it. He made a film that shows the breakdown of a marriage, and it is completely his own uh, personal and yet you know, a a universally felt type of dramatic film about, you know, what it means to love someone and then for that love to be broken apart by the sort of ungainly process of splitting up and getting divorced. Yeah, and what I love about this movie, which I'm actually going to put, it's my number two movie of the year. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Maybe I'm doing this just because I want our list to be slightly different. But no, I was literally... (laughs) Petty duties, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think that it's just so good. And you know there's nothing I love more than a really well-written, like, fight scene. (laughs) People used to tell me that you were too selfish to be a great artist, and I used to defend you. They were absolutely right. All your best acting is behind you. You're back to being a hack. You gaslighted me. You're a fucking villain. And you want to present yourself as a victim because it's a good legal strategy? Fine. But you and I both know you chose this life. 
You wanted it until you didn't. You used me so you could get out of L.A. I didn't use you. You did, and then you blamed me for it. You always made me aware of what I was doing wrong, how I was falling short. Life with you was joyless. What, so then you had to go and fuck someone you else? You shouldn't be upset that I fucked her. You should be upset that I had a laugh with her. Do you love her? No, but she didn't hate me. You hated me. You hated me. You fucked somebody we worked with. You stopped having sex with me in the last year. I never cheated on you. That was cheating on me. But there's so much I could have done. I was a director in my 20s who came from nothing and was suddenly on the cover of fucking Time Out New York. I was hot shit and I wanted to fuck everybody and I didn't. And I loved you and I didn't want to lose you. But I'm in my 20s and I didn't want to lose that too and I kind of did. And you wanted so much, so fast. I didn't even want to get married. Fuck it. There's so much I didn't do. Oh, thanks for that. You're welcome. I can't believe I have to know you forever. Oh, you're fucking insane. And you're fucking winning. Between a couple. But to me, though, that's, I mean, by the time the movie gets to that, it's it's certainly earned. And like scenes from a marriage, you know, you, you I usually think about actually the big fight scene that happens between Lee Volman and Earl and Josephson in that movie. But that comes pretty late in the run of that of that film. In Marriage Story, it also it, that cul- that's a culmination of maybe this will be my so number three. Much, I don't know. Poke. I still can't decide. It's Poke. a really excellent Poke. movie. I I have one tiny eensy beensy little nitpick. Um, so do I. But what's yours? Oh, it's it's so it's almost not worth saying. Um... I, that Sondheim song uh. that uh, Adam Driver, like everyone ta- is talking about that online. That oh my god, did you see Adam Driver does like a rendition of that Stephen Sondheim song? And I'm like, eh. Yeah, I I don't think it's a bad scene, but I actually think it's one of the least emotionally impactful scenes in the entire. I, movie. I get why. So I get why people. Go for it. I do. I, it, maybe that song means more to them or Driver in that moment means more to them. But to me, it's all of like the little scenes in this movie that I think are so yeah. delicately handled. And it, it you like like every little moment when like, for example, um, when Charlie comes over to um, Nicole's house or her parents house and they they talk. They might be talking about something like, "Oh, I brought this. Uh, oh, I have this uh, costume for son to wear. I forget the son's name." And you know, it's like, "Oh, well, he already has a costume. Well, he can wear this." And maybe and it's like, "Oh, the tension of that moment. It's just little things like that. Yeah, feel so lived in and so common." And it's like, I could think that maybe Noah Baumbach had something like this in his life, or maybe not. But it feels so true, and it's like this movie has a thousand little crushing moments. And then by the time you get to that big fight, it feels so devastating because you feel so much for these people. Like, if this movie had begun with that fight... It wouldn't have worked as well. But the fact that they are trying so hard to divorce amicably and the real impossibility of an amicable divorce given their 
given their mutual ambitions and given kind of the inevitably adversarial nature of our legal system, you say their good intentions systematically like broken down. Well, and not only that, it's also how the structure of the movie that makes it so that you you don't know how to feel. I mean, the first I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's exactly in half, but the movie starts off like the first big chunk of this movie is Nicole's story. Yeah. And it's kind of more from her point of view and like you see a long scene with her when she first unloads on Laura Dern about why things broke apart. Um and Laura Dern plays her lawyer. Um, and the, and at first you might feel like, wow, she's saying a lot of things that are, you know, making me really feel for her. Um, she also has a mention of something involving a George Harrison documentary that made me laugh very <laughs> loudly. Um, there are also little funny moments in the movie too, because Noah Baumbach could be a funny yeah. writer. But then, but then there's a point where it becomes more of Charlie's story. Well, there's a line in the movie where I think I don't remember if it's Charlie himself or someone talking to Charlie says that Charlie, maybe you're the ones getting screwed over a bit more during the divorce, but during the actual marriage, you didn't cover yourself in glory. Yeah. So my attitude, not that I think this is the point of the movie, was I was a touch more sympathetic to Charlie going through the divorce process. But if I was evaluating how their marriage went, I'm probably a touch more sympathetic to Nicole. That's fair. I, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that one thing that Noah Baumbach did, though, that makes it so that I guess it maybe it helps to level the playing field a bit is it's because he doesn't make it about money and both the characters are pretty well off. Yeah. Um, it's not the type of movie where you really necessarily feel like, Oh, this person's really getting screwed over. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's about the kid. I'm surprised this movie did not trigger my hatred of rich people. Surprisingly. <laughs> no, um, well, it doesn't. But, it, it, but that's what I mean, though, is that he it's it's much more universal than that. It makes it about what these characters are feeling, what the what the emotional stakes are and just how people have to settle with things like God, the way that he frames like you know, I talk about like it's really. In some ways, it's a very much a script-driven movie, and I've heard interviews where Noah Baumbach talked about, like, he wouldn't allow any improvisation on this film. Mm. Like, it was all, like, every line had to be said, like, a certain, like, the way it was on the page. But there's a scene where they're in court, and, um, and, Noah, and Adam Driver has, has uh, he goes through a couple of lawyers, and, by the way, Alan Alda has some really terrific understated moments here. Oh yeah. Oh God. That's that moment where Alan Alda says to him, if I was your lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, you are my lawyer. God, I got to rewatch this movie. Um, we only watched it once, but, um, but no, Ray Liotta is his lawyer. And, and then like the, the two of them are in court and the way that Noah Baumbach shoots it, he primarily makes it about, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, their faces as they're just very like just looking miserable. And 
and you feel for both of them so much and it's and yeah as you said the crushing weight of the system has them down um you know and and it's some of it's their own doing that's what makes it complicated and messy because it's not such a clean thing. Like it could be easy for Noam Baumbach to have said, "Oh, it's this person's fault or this person's yeah, fault." Yeah, it's really not like that. And it's funny because I was thinking about how much this might have related to another movie he made, which you still haven't seen, and you should, called "The Squid and the Whale," where um, if this movie, Marriage Story, is supposed to be a little bit more about his own divorce, Jennifer Jason Leigh, "Squid and the Whale" is about his parents' breakup. And in that movie, I think they made it a little bit more clear that Jeff Daniels was maybe a little bit more to blame. But even still in that, I thought he also did a good job of making this breakup kind of a mutual thing. You know, like this idea maybe that when people fail each other, that's when you see them at their worst and most vulnerable. Yeah, the real tragedy of this movie is... Two people who, with good intentions and a real connection, their marriage can still fail. I think that's what's kind of disturbing about it. And I remember one of the people you follow on Letterboxd, I don't remember whether it was David Ehrlich or Matt Singer mentioned that there's this element of, like, fear if you watch this as a married person. Because, I mean, one of the things I take from this movie is that you can have a really passionate love for another person and still not be able to make a marriage work with them. And so there's this, if you watch this as part of a marriage, there's this element of this could be you only with a lot less money and glamour. Yeah. And again, there are times where the movie is is amusing and funny and there are certain lines that really will catch you off guard um but it but it really should i feel like this is a movie that's made up of so many quiet moments and beats you know like sometimes like people are alone in a room or like with the little boy and i think that is what builds this up into being such a strong thing like it, it, it earns the really big explosive moment. Yeah. Like, oh God, now I'm just remembering how there are certain people on Twitter who were like, oh my God, who knew that people like acted like this in movies? <laughs> you know, like when they play, they have the little bit of when it's at the most like, yeah. between Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. And they're like, wow, I didn't know that there could be acting like this in a movie. And I'm just like, You've never seen a movie before? Well, I like to. You're right about the small moments and how the characters, even when they're divorcing, have these little moments of intimacy, like how they order lunch for each other when they're in the lawyer's office. Or or Scarlett Johansson, like, cuts his hair while they're divorcing. Yeah. So... Even when their relationship is falling apart, there's these little moments. And I told you it reminded me of when well, well, I... The, now, you're okay with telling this to... Well, I'm not going to tell any information. Like, we're not going to use this person's name or anything. Okay, that's good. Because that would be rude. But 
I had a relationship that ended and when we were breaking up, we had like, a, we were breaking up and we were like yelling at each other and there were tears and crying. And then we left, went to Pizza Hut and um, practiced GRE vocabulary <laughs> words together. And then, and this was- <laughs> I can't go over it. It's just, uh, it's so like awkward. And it's this like- was not a marriage. This was someone I had dated for six months when I was a sophomore in high school and then six months again when I was a senior in high school. Would you say in that moment you he was Michael Scott and you were Jan? <laughs> but even at a even in a relationship obviously far less significant than a long-run marriage, once you're used to relating to someone in a certain way, you can't just flip the switch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, the, it show, the character, like, Charlie and Nicole still, they love each other. It's just that they can't work together as a, like, a unit. And that's what makes it all the worse. It's like, it's not, it'd be easier if, you know, if, if like, one of them was, like, an abusive asshole or if one of them was you know, completely unstable, then you could say, oh, well, yeah. you know, that's why, like, you know, Charlie isn't like OJ, <laughs> you know, where it's like, run, run as far away as you can. Um, but it, that's what... Uh, and what I do think is interesting, there is infidelity in the movie, but it's made explicit that the infidelity is not in the top 10 problems in the marriage. It, yeah, it, it, it feels like the what makes what brings on the divorce is a it's like a culmination of all these little things. And that's what makes it again much more tragic and what makes us feel for them and even like the very end and the end of the movie suggests that yeah, they're not going to get back together but maybe they can get along being apart. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I I think there's a real tragedy to the fact that this couple was not able to stay together, but their final scene together is also kind of hopeful and it's very yeah. bittersweet and gave me a very intense stew of emotions. It's 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 why can't this marriage be saved the movie? <laughs> While we were watching this movie, I said to you multiple times, we are never allowed to divorce. <laughs> never. Never, never, never. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't want to have to see Laura Dern in the courtroom. She scares me. <laughs> so, no, do we want to move on to our next movie while we're still in the realm of Netflix kicking ass? Do 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 you got rewarded. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. Friend at the top. Back then, there was nobody in this country who didn't know who Jimmy Hoffa was. You got a gun! Get the gun out of his hand! You always charge a guy with a gun. With a knife, you run away. So you charge with a gun, with a knife, you run. Irishman, woot woot. Uh, so Irish. Hey, Corey, I heard you paint houses with hugs. <laughs> and I heard you also do your own hugging tree. 
So I want to say to you to start off talking about this movie, something that I said to you earlier tonight when we were having dinner, Yeah. which is that I feel like this movie works better than it has any right to. Because See, I, I don't know if I would agree with that, but go ahead and give me your reasoning. Okay. Which so, is wrong. <laughs> well, no, here's the thing. I think, obviously, when I'm watching this movie, I'm comparing it to Scorsese's other work in this area. Mm -hmm. So I'm comparing it to, like, your Casino, your Goodfellas, your Departed, even, like, your Wolf of Wall Street. And I think what distinguishes all of those movies, as different as they are from each other, what distinguishes all of them from The Irishman is all of those other movies are about men with big personalities and big appetites and, like, intense emotions. And their criminality comes from, like, not, it comes from, like, you know, selfishness, cruelty, anger, but it comes from a place of really intense emotion. It comes from, like, I am so angry or I am so greedy or... I have such zest for life or I have to have sex with, I have to have sex five times a day. Like, I feel like the gangsters in Scorsese's movies are very appetite driven. Yeah. Or even to, you know, and also including, you know, I know technically it's what we call quote white collar, but Wolf of Wall Street, I oh, think yeah. falls under that category too. Like Jordan Belfort is someone who. He's a tremendous hedonist, although, frankly, he doesn't even make hedonism look very good. But you have all of these movies which are populated by very big personalities with, like, very larger-than-life figures. What distinguishes The Irishman for me is both Frank Sheeran and... What's the Joe Pesci character? Uh, Russell Buffalino. Okay, Russell Buffalino... They are men to me that are just are vacant. Well, no, they see, are voids in their soul. I disagree with you because I think that what Scorsese's doing is it's like he's. I know some people have said that he's making like almost like a commentary or a quote apology for his previous gangster movies, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is him reckoning with this entire quote unquote greatest generation of like men who like who went off to world war two and like very easily someone like Frank didn't necessarily have to go down the path yeah. of, you know, being a hired killer and, you know, a person who did jobs for, uh. you know, organized crime. He could have just been a guy who, worked for a union and raised yeah. his family, which is, in a sense, he's made a movie that these characters are probably closer to how a lot of people in American middle-class society saw their fathers. I mean, yeah. a lot of people who were very much like, you know, dad didn't say much. He didn't, you know, talk about, you know, the war. He didn't talk, he didn't have, he didn't talk about feelings and, and things like that. And that, to me almost shows a level of confidence that Scorsese has that is just so remarkable for me that he could make a movie that in some ways is, I don't know if I'd say the word deeper, but 
it's like someone who's lived even more of a life than someone than the man who yeah. made Mean Streets or Goodfellas or or even Casino. Um, and in a sense, I also think, and I might have said this to you after I saw one the movie one of the times I did. I think the movie. A lot of time, maybe it's like Scorsese has also been always great throughout his entire career at trying to put the like trying to put you into something of the headspace of the character or to kind of give you an idea of almost viscerally experiencing the world that the character is in through this process. So uh, someone like Henry Hill, you know, in Goodfellas is experiencing this world of gangsterdom in a very like, you know, like narcotized, very like seduced state. Like, you know, he's seduced by the mob and like, or even taxi driver, you understand, you know, you get into the headspace of a guy who you don't really want to be in the headspace of, or, you know, even casino to an extent that's about like the rush of being in a place as crazy as Vegas. Irishman, you're in, you're in more of the mode of, I'm a little bit more of a quiet guy and I don't try to say much for good reason because, you know, I kill people for a living. I agree totally with you. I don't think what you're saying is in what it was in what contradiction what I was saying. Oh, sure, sure. I was just saying that in the hands of a lesser filmmaker. Yeah. This movie could have been a real slog. Oh, sure. And I'm incredibly impressed by how totally enthralling this movie is about a man who has had 90% of his emotional life just stripped out of him well it's well it's also like it's kind of like the it's the perspective of someone who is a like try is a good is a quote unquote good soldier you know yeah. someone who always follows orders doesn't you know try to buck anything that anyone is trying to to do um in that sense i um, it, it brought. It, it feels like he's not through the whole movie, but at times has made a film that's closer to the style of Jean-Pierre Melville's crime movies and like uh, you know, like mo- movies that are very kind of cold emotionally, but it's by on purpose. Yeah, this movie is so chilling. In a way, I find it even more horrifying that a man could just let himself drift into a life like this. Than having a drive and following it, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, but in his way, but he in in a, in the one slightly similar way of Frank and like Henry Hill, though they are kind of seduced by a certain aspect of the life that they've chosen to be in. It's just with Frank that comes into play more so with uh, Jimmy. I Jimmy think Hoffa. that with Frank, this is. This is a character that, like, shouldn't... I'm almost shocked that this character worked so well in a movie as opposed to a book. Mm. A character this contained, this internal... A character who seems very unreflective, to put it mildly. Well, it's it's interesting, because I think we we credit Scorsese, but it's also De Niro. I think Mm. he is someone who's mastered and has been a master for a long time at listening. There's a lot of time in this movie where Frank is having to listen to what other people say. He has to listen to what Russell tells him, what Jimmy tells him. And De Niro's always been 
you you always think you always can see that he's thinking something when they're saying things and oh god like there's a scene because the movie is sort of put into like kind of almost three layers of time where he's frank is like in an old age home telling the story of his life and then there's a running thing of showing uh frank and russell with their wives uh, driving to go to a wedding that's where the farewell comes back into play the wedding being a pretext for you know jimmy hoffa needs to sit down with the mob to try to work things out but at a certain point in the movie he's told yeah we've done everything we could you know and we had i had to put you into this thing you wouldn't let it happen and you know, we say that he's not, you know, he try, He doesn't show emotion. He's very cold. But watching that scene, I just look at what De Niro's doing. And I just, my heart breaks for him. It's a masterful performance. And yeah. it's easily the best work he's done in like 20 years. 30 years. <laughs> no, the Jackie Brown. Yeah. That was a pretty great performance. That was an amazing performance. Yeah. Well, what were you thinking? Thirty years? Were you just thinking Goodfellas? I that's even that's like, yeah. That's what I was thinking, <laughs> but, no, See, we're, we're like the characters in the Irishman. We're falling apart here. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that telling this, I I think this is such a brilliant and important story to tell. You're right, a story about. It's about, like, it's like the ultimate This American Life story. Yeah. I never listened to that show, but, like, it feels like this is telling the story of an American life. And when I say American, I mean, you know, like, Jimmy Hoffa is this larger-than-life presence in the movie. Like, he's the one that gets, like, I think that Scorsese realized, okay, in this movie, it's time I let De Niro and Pesci, they're going to underplay it, you know. You vote for me! <laughs> I'm back, baby! This is certainly using Al Pacino at his best. This is also his best work in a while. Like, this helps me to forget that, like... Oh, God. Did you see the movie that Pacino and De Niro did together, like, ten years ago? That movie, Righteous Kill? No. Uh, you know, it's funny. At the time, I thought the movie was okay. Now, thinking back on it, it's probably pretty bad. It was like a kind of lame, like, cop movie. And, like, the big deal was, for some reason, like, you know, De Niro and Pacino, they're in Godfather 2. They just don't share scenes. In the movie Heat, they also don't share scenes except for, like, one scene in a diner. But I shit you not, there were people who were complaining because they don't share the, they're, they're not in the same frame together. You don't see them together in a scene. And that's why I think this movie Righteous Kill happened. So that you could see De Niro and Pacino in the same shot. And it sucked. (laughs) Give the people what they want. Um, Luckily, though, this time Pacino gets to eat his ice cream. Yeah, and I actually... He's immensely charismatic in this movie. And you're right, he's... Mm. An interesting counterpoint to I think you nailed it when you said that the other characters in this movie have been badly stunted both by their war experience and by the expectations of masculinity at the and, time they were. And that and that leads me I also got to bring up uh uh the the daughter. Yeah, yeah. and actually 
Two, I what I look at is when I see a character like Jimmy Hoffa in this movie, he's like he is so much feeling. He's on fire. He's a, he's like a flame. Robert De Niro like oh, and flickers also, a little bit. Oh, and I also want to mention too. Um, I mean, there are also other supporting players in here who bring it, like Stephen Graham, who uh, he's a pro. The, the, the yeah. other the other gangs yeah yeah he he's great you know it also reminded me every time I wear shorts now I'll yeah. have to be conscious of it oh he was so good he was so good Ray Romano is so good um but what were you leading up to I feel well, like I, was, I cut you off yeah I was leading to this idea that that I feel like there are these moments in the movie where like you do see Robert De Niro feel something like I said I I look at him as like a tiny tepid flame that like flickers to life a little bit at times. Whereas Al Pacino is like an inferno. Yeah. And I think it's so fascinating and so true and so necessary to show a movie about how like you can just fall into this kind of life without a lot of agency, without a lot of direction and without even the drives that we associate with criminality. Yeah. Well, again, it, as I said before, it looks at a different type of criminality where if someone is just a foot soldier taking orders, they you know, d- willingly give up their agency because they believe like they're into like a higher thing and it's what being a man is about. And ultimately, it's not because you leave, you know, the important stuff like your family behind. Well, I also thought of I haven't read this in a very long time. In fairness, I seriously read this like 17 or 18 years ago. But I was thinking of the Grand Inquisitor, you know, Dostoevsky. And the, the thesis of that story is that people want to be freed of the burden of choice. Yeah, that there are a lot of people who feel liberated if they are told you don't have to think for yourself, choose for yourself, that choice and agency is an is a psychological burden for a lot of people. Yes. And I feel like Frank Sheeran was attracted to a kind of life where he could just kind of robot his way through. And what I find interesting is you don't see him enjoying the spoils of his success like no, at he, all. No, he doesn't. Never. I mean, he even there's a whole long sequence in the movie where his union gives him like an appreciation night. And I mean, he you know, he's thankful, but he doesn't seem like that enthused. Like if anything like kind of maybe gives him the teeniest glimmer of I'm touched is when Russell gives him the ring at the ceremony. And like that holds much more meaning for him than any like, you know, big ceremony. And yeah, like exactly. Like, yeah, he never even gets to really enjoy his spoils. He doesn't live a luxurious life. Like he's not out there with a huge house and like 10 cars. You don't see him indulging in the pleasures of the flesh. No, I mean, they do mention that he did find another woman. And yeah, but again, the the movie 
deals with that in the most kind of like understated way. There's no, there's no like sex or drama or angst. It's no, just- it's no, no, absolutely. Like to me, the other movie I thought of watching this as far as kind of direction and presentation and, and, and you know, the kind of distance is, yeah. was this Kurosawa film, Akira Kurosawa film called Ren, which is also the kind of story of like an old man and, uh, and how his life kind of is, he realizes everything has fallen apart and, you know, it's obviously a much different story, but it has like that similar thing of, Scorsese's like, I don't need to show the kind of you know, like Kurosawa in that film was like, I don't need to go as intense as I used to with my violence or my spectacle. I can just pull back a bit and show this thing happening in a more naturalistic way. And like, there are times where, yeah, like murders happen in the movie and they feel kind of brutal, but it also is it's it's very as i said kind of clinical it's just like bam you're dead clinical is the perfect word for it you you don't get like you know in goodfellas there's this moment where joe pesci kills a particular character um it's the scene where you know you can get the coffee to go <laughs> well it's a joke don't, don't, don't take, it's a joke don't take the coffee let's go and Scorsese then kind of shows like Joe Pesci in slow motion shooting this character over and over again. There's nothing like that in this movie. The closest thing, oddly enough, he gives a moment to uh, Joe Hoffa, I think. Yeah. And like she puts like very slowly a key in the ignition and he has like a jump cut to a car exploding. And it shows that there is an awareness that Anybody could die at any time in this movie. And there's also those oh, consistent text calls. Yes, yes, yes. That's why, like, the second time I watched this movie, I said that this movie really should be called People Who Died. <laughs> like the Jim Carroll song, People Who Died, Died. Like, that's this movie. It kind of, the great the, the message of this is, you know, you can, like, live this life of crime and think you're on top and do all this. But you know what? Everyone in the end is going in the ground. Yeah. Everyone is either going to be killed by someone else or, or you'll be like Joe Kennedy (laughs) and just like die in like a wheelchair looking at your son on TV. (laughs) Um, Like, and that's the thing. It's like, and even like when he, Oh man. And how he uh, kind of, to use the George Lucas phrase, it's like poetry it rhymes. <laughs> the the way he kind of shows the image of them eating the the bread with the wine. Yeah, and how we see it in the beginning of the movie. They're in this nice restaurant. They're eating the bread with the wine. They're talking to each other. They're having pro. They're having the closest thing these emotionally constipated men are capable of having is like a bonding moment. And then when we go back to it, they're in the hot. They're in the prison. They're old. Mm-hmm. They're physically infirm. Leave it to Martin Scorsese to make like the best commentary about toxic masculinity in 2019. <laughs> yeah, and I th- in in a manner of speaking. Yeah, but everything everything about this movie is amazing. But I think too, 
one of the reasons why I think this movie has such a clinical tone is we know from literally the first scene that Robert De Niro is narrating the story of his life from very old, close to death, where his life has been hollowed out yeah. of everything. Yeah. Like, the, the any connection he had over the course of his life is gone. Everyone is dead or estranged from him. So now he's an old man in a nursing home. And what does he have to show for it? Yeah. Yeah. He, he it's, uh, it's like a, um, what's that line from, uh, the song hurt my empire of dirt. Yes. Yeah. This is a movie about like an empire of dirt. And, uh, and it's, it's the hardest kind of movie to pull off. It's an intimate yeah. epic. This runs, you know, it's three and a half hours long and, I don't think it's long at all. I could watch it for longer. Yeah, this is the one movie this year that doesn't feel too long. I mean, again, as I said, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It does run long. Irishman earns every minute it has. I agree with you. I I feel like I see so many movies that are too long. Give me more Pacino eating ice cream sundaes. Yes. I (laughs) I could watch, like... 10 hours of this movie, easy. And you're right where an intimate epic is the perfect word for it. And said, I'm, I was boggled by how well it worked as I was watching it. And it's amazing. And I think that you mentioned, actually, you mentioned you think Anne of Hackland should get an Oscar nomination for this. Yes, I and do. I, I agree with you. Like, everyone was trashing on they should have given her more lines. Like, why didn't she get more to do? No, that's the point. Yeah. She is representative of an entire generation of both, you know, women and men. You know, the children of the, quote, greatest generation who, you know, didn't get the time of day from their parents. It could yeah. have been about it didn't even necessarily need, need to be about someone who was a hitman. It's about, again, like when we talked about with Marriage Story, it hits on a universal theme yeah. you know so it goes beyond like but it is of course related to to this character that the one time she does speak it's about you know it's a it's that she is really personally hurt too well she's the linchpin of the whole movie yeah like and, and i think she and she plays it very well i i'll even go far and say it. i think her work in this movie is just as vital as her work in margaret well, that's crazy. But, um, <laughs> well, I agree well, she, with you. That. She, I think maybe she had a few too many words in Margaret. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope that doesn't bring on our divorce. But I think that one of the themes of the movie is how impoverished Frank's life is because of his inability yeah. to connect with her and his inability to have any kind of intimate connection. Um, yeah. With any women whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Because we certainly don't see any kind of intimacy between him and either of his wives. I mean, he makes a bunch of kids, so I assume he's fucking her. But beyond that... Yeah. Literally, the only thing I would say as to why this isn't my number one of the year, aside from our number one, the number one film being so, you know, monumental... I was fine actually with the the de aging 
CGI. I I thought it actually worked for what it was meant to do. Like, is it, you know, could it have been slightly better maybe, but it still worked. The, when they show him in world war two, which is, I know 30 seconds of the movie, he did not look like he was like it's in his twenties. It's full polar express. <laughs> Just that one little nugget. Yeah, there's like one nugget of polar express in an otherwise impressive uh thing. I wonder if this will get best visual effects at the Oscars. I, I feel like the de aging software was fine. I didn't always find it persuasive. When I first saw like that scene when um, Frank first meets Ru- uh, Russell uh. at the gas station, I kind of noticed it there, but I got used to it though. I adjusted. Like I was able to, you know, I, I was able to believe that this man who's supposed to be in his 30s looks like he's in his 50s, which is better than looking like he's in his 70s. <laughs> so that was fine too. Um, Do you know what's one thing that hit me even more the second time I watched this? What? How desperately um, the Joe Pesci character wants to connect with Frank's kids and how yes. desperately he tries to connect to Peggy. And Yeah, and that's like his great, like if he has any disappointment, it's that. Yeah, so we're told in the movie that he and his wife can't have children. And you can tell there's a real longing in his heart for him to have a child. Although, frankly, if he had a child, it's not like he'd be father of the year, given what we know about him. A little buffy. (laughs) But the scenes where he's trying so hard to reach out to young Peggy. And young Peggy knows, even as a child, that this man is rotten. I almost... I'm, I'm tempted to say it. This could be Joe Pesci's like greatest work as an actor. It's a bold claim because you know, good you know, Goodfellas looms so much in you know, you know my my life and my mind. And you know, there's also Casino where you know that character is even better. But this is like he basically got to play like Michael Corleone. This was spectacular, and it's again, it's. Show this was the performance that I was most positively surprised by because I actually haven't seen a lot of Joe Pesci movies. I've seen his other Scorsese movies and I've seen him in like the Home Alone movies. But well, well, oh, we didn't talk about how almost there's like an in joke that because there's stuff in the movie that there's a brief subplot involving the mob and Cuba and Castro. There's a point where Frank meets a quote fairy named Fairy. Yeah. Who is the Joe Pesci character from the movie JFK. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen JFK. You can't too. miss him. Yeah, uh, you saw him in JFK. Yeah, and well, I mean, what are you going to say? Like, what were you, you haven't seen the Lethal Weapon movies. You haven't sure. seen you haven't seen him in the Rodney Dangerfield movie, Easy Money. He is spectacular in this. And it makes me sad that he's... He didn't make movies for a bunch of years well, before this. He was he was the guy who actually almost retired. He did like one movie, I think, in the past like twenty years, and I think he did a cameo in The Good Shepherd just because you know. Oh yeah, 
Bah. Although, you know what, though? We have the Good Shepherd to thank for this movie. Because I read that De Niro, like, when he was doing research for the Good Shepherd, he came across this book. And, like, that he then said, like, look, we, Mark Scorsese, we need to do this. So... That was the one good thing to come out of that movie. Well, I guess it was worth it. So this is definitely my number two movie. And Marriage Story is definitely my number three. It was so close between them. I think I changed my position multiple times. And I was going to make Marriage Story my number two just to make us a little different. But what can I say? I'm... I'm Did I I talk you into it? I'm a follower, not a leader. The... The Irishman is definitely number two. Okay. Now, the Marriage Story is definitely number three. Before we get into our number one, I just wanted to run through some movies that well, I call honorable mentions. Frankly, a few of them were in my, you know, were in my top level before other films, you know, this fall came out. Um, but there's still films I've much admired, like... Um, the last, the last black man, San Francisco. That's my one honorable mention movie. The only movie that I seriously considered putting on this list that didn't make the list was Last Black Man in San Francisco. That would be my number eleven. A very good film. Yes, uh, that that film is a very uh, in, inspired look at um, you know a community and you know what one's place is in a city and uh, friendship. Um, you know, in an artistic endeavor. In that way, I feel like Last Black Man San Francisco is probably uh, a less showy movie about friendship in the arts than <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, oh, can I say one last thing about The Irishman? I'm sorry. Oh, yes. You know how you said that you loved just being in the world in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah. That's how I feel about The Irishman. I just love... And I, that feels um, weird to say because it's an incredibly depressing movie. I don't know if I'd say I'd lo- I love being in that world. I think it's a pretty suffocating place. It's I mean, a- it's, it's, it is... An interesting world to experience. It's a dark and depressing world where everyone lives lives of quiet desperation, and, and then they die. And then sometimes Harvey Keitel talks you uh, like down. <laughs> but despite that, I loved just existing in the world. I would seriously watch hours of outtakes of that movie, uh-huh. just watching the characters like go grocery shopping. Go to the post office. Have dinner together. Uh, well, well, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think like some of it could be kind of awkward. But I just, even though it's a, it's a very, I think, I think this is a very downbeat and depressing movie. And you want to live in a downbeat and depressing world? <laughs> don't we already live in that? <laughs> All right. Okay, let me go on. All right. So I said last Black Man, San Francisco. Um, Amazing Grace, which was, frankly, it's almost like the, the, it was my first great movie of 2019, and it's technically a film from 1972, <laughs> um, which involves Aretha, Aretha Franklin and her uh, gospel concert, which was originally directed by the late Sidney Pollock. Um, that was just really... It really tugged on my heartstrings in a, in, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, imagine if you're not an Aretha Franklin fan, then I guess don't bother. But uh, but I, I thought it was fantastic. 
Um, on that theme, there was another Netflix movie, The Rolling Thunder Review, once again, Scorsese. Okay, uh, not see. He often will do this where he'll have one movie come out and then another movie that's a music movie. And this is just a... It was another Bob Dylan movie, but it's very different than his other Bob Dylan movie because his first one, No Direction Home, was more of a straight documentary about his first like six or seven years in the business. Rolling Thunder Review is incredibly weird, and a lot of it might be bullshit, but I don't care because it's wildly entertaining because it involves like this series of concerts Bob Dylan did where he would wear like almost clown makeup. And and yet they some of the live performances that are featured in it, which I don't know if they've been seen before. It's some of like the best live Bob Dylan I've ever seen. Um, just really excellent versions of songs from the from that period. Um, I highly recommend it. It has a it features five minutes with Sharon Stone that are like the best thing she's done in like this century in movies <laughs> that's being very unfair to her opening scene in basic instinct two only <laughs> i kid you not the opening scene of basic instinct two is a trash masterpiece <laughs> the rest of the movie is not up to snuff and is actually quite boring but it was more basic <laughs> and less instinct. But I recommend the opening scene okay. of Basic Instinct. All right. I, have, I have a number more. I mentioned Us as being an honorable mention. Also, Toy Story 4 and Little Women are in my honorable mentions. Uh, the Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life, is in my honorable mentions. I think this is a really impressive film from him that, frankly, well, I don't know if I'd say it's better than Tree of Life because it's a little bit no, it, I, I like it more than Tree of Life. I'm sorry, people. Tree of Life is 80% of amazing movie and 20% shit. Hidden Life, at least, is more consistent. <laughs> uh, also, I really liked uh, Gloria Bell, which uh, gives Julianne Moore another amazing performance. And I also think you would have liked that movie. Quite yeah, a bit. I'm meaning to watch that. Yeah, and that's like, that's that just shows a example of... It's a good version of a men are, men are trash story that doesn't make that the full focus, but it gives enough time to it <laughs> that you you get why Julianne Moore does what she does at the end of this movie. I don't like men are trash stories because you're not trash. Aw, well, but I'm not like the rest of men. Not all men. <laughs> I all can right. say it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, though there are some good men out there. Um... And then, well, another good man is Keanu Reeves, who was in John Wick 3, Parabellum. Excellent. By far the best of the John Wick movies. Yes. So good. That is a... The, the, the stunt work and fight choreography in that film is just beyond brilliant. Like, if you didn't... If, if there was any example of why there should be a stunt uh, category uh, at the Oscars, it's John Wick 3. Um... A couple of documentaries of note, uh, American Factory and Hail Satan. Uh, I'm saying that, that question really marks. Good. Both of those movies I thought were quite good. If you haven't American Factory is on uh, Netflix. That's a documentary about a Chinese company that takes over this factory in Ohio. And that's all I'll say about it. Um, Hail Satan is a really excellent look at uh, free speech issues. 
Um, a few more just to run off, uh, because like I said, I actually had a number of movies I really liked this year that just didn't make the cut. Uh, Dolomite is my name. That was um, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking up motherfuckers is my name. <laughs> uh, the Lighthouse. Uh, a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which uh, makes Mariel Heller a director who's now three for three. Yep. My book. Um, Ready or Not was a oh, lot that of fun. Was so fun. That was basically like the B movie of the year, uh, as far or the B movie of the summer, I should say. Um, it gave a really good jolt for you know the end of that summer, and uh, and a, a few more here. The souvenir uh, was quite good. Um, it is a, quite is a bit of a flawed movie, but Midsommar had some brilliant sequences. And almost was maybe a top 10 movie until like its last half hour, 45 minutes or so. And did we ever talk about Midsommar before on the podcast? I don't think we recorded, but I don't like it. I now I like certain things about it. That Midsommar and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are kind of in that same group. Yeah, like I would give Midsommar two and a half stars out of five. So I would give it the highest rotten rating. There are some things about it I really like, but the it goes nowhere like i think it's strong setup absolutely terrible Mm -hmm. execution and one last film um which i it's a film that i it's like i feel hesitant about recommending but it depends on what kind of viewer you are which is uncut gems and that uh has been on a lot of best of lists uh it's an extremely anxiety provoking movie um, like it makes like John Cassavetes has sometimes made, made movies like th- this where like you could feel your blood pressure kind of rising, but this is like that times 10. And so if you don't want to see a movie like that, maybe don't go to see it or maybe wait. Um, but for right now, uh, I, it has some really incredible acting and tension. Yeah. I, I like this movie a lot. I thought that by by design, the movie's a one-trick pony that plays, like, one note the entire time. Just, oh, my God, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Okay, and now for our, now we should get to our number one, though. Yeah, and Without me, further ado. This was number one by a significant margin. Like, it, for me, this was head and shoulders above every other movie I saw this year. For me, Irishman came kind of close. Um... It's like my heart is always with Scorsese because he's, you know, what makes cinema worth watching in this, you know, in the art in my in my generation. But, um, but what I would say though is, I I didn't leave a movie on more of a high of why I love to go to the movies like I did with Parasite. <laughs> 아그 제시카란 친구가 엄청 독특한 수업을 하면서 애들을 꽉 잡는다고 소문이 쫙 났답니다. 어뭐 어, 이쪽 어깨선 나름 신선한 케이스. 근데 또그 친구 수업이 유니크하면서도 뭐예중 예고 입시까지 뭐다 커버해주는. 어머 어머 너무 궁금하네요. 어떤 분이실까? 만나 보시겠어요? 아 근데 이 친구 약속 잡기 되게 어렵다던데. 아 잠깐 제시카 외동딸 일리노이 시카고 과선배는 김지모 그는 이사촌 
Parasite, Parasite, Parasite is not only by far the best movie of the year, but as I'm sure we said when we did our review, this is a film of the decade. This is a major work. Jessica, Chicago, Koshika, Chicago. I'm not going to pronounce it. 50 years from now, people are going to be talking about this movie. I think, yeah, the, the way that we are still talking about, you know, film, you know, from last decade, we still talk about there will be blood and, uh, you know, Mulholland Drive, and then the decade before that, we talk about you know Goodfellas and Pulp Fiction and uh, and Fargo. We're going to be talking about Parasite because this film is uh, you know we, we talked at length about this uh, when it first came out, but it bears repeating that Bong Joon Ho has made you know maybe the definitive film of my lifetime about what it means to live under the age of capitalism. Yeah. There is no better movie about the, and it's funny because it's not set in America, but no, there is no better movie about the political and economic um, life of America. And well, well, just throughout the West, the, throughout the, the the rest of the world that that has, you know, people who have a lot, people who don't have that much. And what happens when this clash happens? And what is so brilliant about the film is that Bong Joon-ho, he doesn't push that in your face, like, right away. I mean, he he, he introduces this family um, that is, you know, kind of struggling to live and, you know, get jobs and have good Wi-Fi. Um, but, he, but he kind of leads you into that because he makes the story at first seem like a you know, a kind of tale of deception and, um, and, and try, you know, it almost, it's, it's like the best Hitchcock movie that he didn't make because yeah. of how much you are slowly, but surely engrossed into this story of families ingratiate of, of a family ingratiating itself through one step on top of another. Yeah, and the politics of this movie are an organic outcropping of the character drama. So even though I think this movie is very obviously political, it's not didactic. It's not no. a bunch of straw men characters speechifying to you. Rather, it's through the interaction of incredibly authentic characters navigating a very difficult situation that Bong Joon-ho tells us everything we need to know about every facet of contemporary society. Yes, and and he and it's it's like a grand symphony that you don't even realize you're listening to that is in these multiple parts and it's like by by the time you get to the middle of the movie, you realize this movie is going to be something else than yeah. what it was before. Like you're literally going into another level. Yeah, and I use the my you know our our age group uses the word literally too much. No, you literally go into another level in order to plumb the depths of you know, what these people are into. And we've, we talked about this probably in the, in our previous episode, but it's remarkable how astutely Bong Joon-ho makes this about how it's not necessarily really how the, the rich just directly oppress the lower classes. Like that would almost be too much of like a simplistic propaganda story. It's really 
it really happens that people who are in a similar economic situation or almost equitable attack each other. Yeah. So and they're pitted against each other because how else are you going to survive? Yeah, so this movie directly addresses the difficulty of developing class solidarity and how capitalism makes you fight who should be your natural ally and how we talked about how we really like that movie Ready or Not and it's really fun, but that's obviously like a more kind of like goofy cartoony it's, it's addressing the, it's of these the, themes. It's, well, no, it's, it's the exploitation version of it. It's yeah. what you would expect to see in a grindhouse. Yeah, so in Ready or Not, the class commentary comes from, look at how terrible these rich people are. Look at what bad people they are. They are bad, bad, bad people. But but also, but it's more nuanced because the, like, you take, like, the, the, the son, and I, I'm forgetting his name now, but the son of Song Kang Ho. Yeah. The one who first goes to be a... Uh, a tutor and how he wonders like, can I, am I, would I fit into your world? Like he asks uh, the teenage girl that question and there's no clear answer for that. You know, he thinks maybe he'd want to be there, but it, um, it, it fits in with maybe if there is a slight theme of this year, it's what is your place in the society? Yeah. And how, how are your choices shaped by the fact that you interact with institutions with larger systemic? Yeah. And even, but then he makes it very, he, but the way that theme is represented is, you know, very clever because he makes it about very simple elemental things like the smell of a person Yeah, and how that will just instinctively make Someone who has been raised and lives a life of comfort, it has a revulsion to. Yeah. It's like even that smell is a product of the system, man. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> so the rich people in this movie, they are not ill-intentioned people. They are not cruel people. Yeah. But their wealth mm -hmm. has distorted their relationship with everyone else in the world with yeah. very tragic consequences. And it's just uh, putting in and aside from that, what would make, you know, this is just such a sheerlessly entertaining. Yeah. Ex and we talked about it before like Kn knives out had like an impeccable kind of plot. This feels impeccably crafted. Like every moment you're watching yeah. it, like, there was this uh, YouTuber named the nerd writer who did a video looking at the sequence where um, it, I think it might almost just run like a minute of film or maybe, maybe it might be a couple minutes where in a in a montage, they Bong Joon-ho shows how the, the maid of the house, the housekeeper is eventually kicked out because of her, you know, allergic reaction to peaches. Yeah, this movie is as heavy as it is, and I think it deals with a lot yeah, of dark and It's heavy a lot nature. of fun. It's so fun, and it's the adrenaline, the way the adrenaline coursed through my body yeah, at times in this movie. Yeah, it, it, when I say Hitchcock, I, that's a, a means to say that, you know, you, you when you watch his, you know, the Hitchcock movies, 
that shouldn't that's not really meant to be work that's supposed to be fun and then in this case it's that level of fun too but at the same time ultimately the message of the movie maybe comes down to what song kang ho says when he's at a low point you know, don't make any plans. <laughs> Nothing works out. Just have no plan in life. I can't wait to see this movie again. You've seen it multiple times. I've only seen it once. Yeah, I, I saw it twice. And I will say, on a second viewing, clearly it didn't have the same surprise element that seeing it the first time did. But that didn't mean that I had any less enjoyment or saw that it was any less of a movie. It was just... Your your expectations are a little more calibrated, and this time, you, you, it's not that you're waiting for what's going to happen next, but you are a little bit more settled into experiencing the acting and things that you might not have appreciated as much the first time around. Um, yeah, this is a major work. I love it so much. It's 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 a reason to still go to the movies. It's why you know it's uh it, it's why we love to go to the movies to experience. You know, stories that are rather incredible, but they speak to the world that we're living in, which, uh, you know, is like, you know, I mentioned, you know, There'll Be Blood or Goodfellas. I had had some big disappointments by the time we saw this movie, and I was a little cautious because this movie had gotten tons of hype even before we saw it. And so I had a few big disappointments, but... Thank you, Bong Joon-ho. You know, even if every other movie I had seen this year was crap, every other one, this one movie was good enough to make it worthwhile. And, you know, I'm actually, I'm feeling a little better about 2019 as a film year now that we've been reminiscing about the best of it. So I'm, I'm leaving on a high note. That's good. Yeah. Kyogre! We're leaving on a high note, George. All (laughs) right. So thank you so much, guys, for listening to our exhaustive list of the top 10 films we of talked for a really 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 long time we did we're and sorry. but we're no i'm not sorry i think we had some good things to say and i'm, I'm glad that again you listen to us uh you know shout outs as always to uh do we call him listener gabe <laughs> well we should we should we should mention <laughs> listener alex too yes also listener alex if you're out there and Everyone else out there throughout the world listening, thank you. Uh, Wage of Cinema, gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Remember on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. If you get through a tin cans, through wire, whatever. Um, then maybe next time we come back, we'll still talk about some good movies. Um, you know, maybe we could always talk about a bad movie too. You never know. Maybe there'll be a new Tyler Perry movie. Who knows? Oh, we should. Yeah, new Tyler Perry movie <laughs> dropping this weekend. We should do it. Oh, I don't know if I'll have much to say about that one. Um, but anyway, until next time, I'm Jack. I'm Corey. Wifely duties, Corey. Yay! And the wages of cinema is just give Frank Sheeran a hug. Hugs. Hugs, Frank. <laughs> we done what we could. It's what it is. Good night.